Studios Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trichauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Happy International Women's Day! To celebrate the holiday, we're taking a deep dive into what it's like being a woman in peace negotiations, if you even make it in the door. These forums are some of the most important, not only for ending conflicts, but for sustaining peace. Prio senior researcher Jenny Lorenzen recently defended her PhD dissertation, which focused partly on women's participation in Malian peace processes. Today, to celebrate International Women's Day, we're talking about why having women at the table is so important and what other countries and groups can learn from cases like Mali. Welcome, Yeni. Thanks for joining me for this special edition of the podcast uh, for International Women's Day. And we're going to be talking about uh, what I think is one of the most important uh, aspects of women, peace, and security, which is women's inclusion in peace negotiations and agreements. And this is your area of expertise. You just successfully defended your PhD, which was titled Normative Encounters Between the Global and the Local Women, Peace and Security in Mali and Rwanda. So congratulations on that. I just wanted to say that up front. We're very proud of you and happy for you. Um, So we've talked in this podcast before about women, peace and security, and I'll link to some of those episodes um, in the description so people can get a bit of background. Um, But we've talked about how quickly the agenda has evolved and it's been implemented over the last 20 years in various ways since it was adopted in UN Resolution 1325. But how often are women actually included in peace processes these days? And what are the results of that? I mean, maybe to some people it seems really obvious that women should be included. Um, But what happens when women are included in these processes? Thank you, Indigo. Thank you for that uh, really great introduction. And uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, Yeah, so uh, women's inclusion in peace processes is something I have spent a lot of time working on, researching. Uh, As you said, it's the topic of my PhD. And uh, it's a really key part of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which is, of course, as you mentioned, this uh, resolution 1325 adopted by the UN Security Council in the year 2000, but also several other resolutions that have followed. And uh, I think almost all, if not actually all the resolutions, reaffirm this idea that women should be included in peace processes. And... um, So kind of where are we today, like 20 years later, I think uh, we can say that um, uh, there is progress uh, and uh, studies have shown that there are more references to women and uh, to gender in peace agreements uh, since uh, 2000. Uh, And we also have more and more examples of processes which have sought to include women um, in quite innovative and also even substantial ways. For example, uh, the peace process in Colombia is, is an example that very often uh, comes up. And, and of course, this is also a case where Norway played uh, an important role as facilitator. And I also, um, kind of my observation is also that uh, inclusion kind of across peace processes is getting more uh, systematic, I think, more... Um, I think the question comes up more often, uh, where are the women, kind of, and uh, also that there is more learning from one process to another. 
Um, and there are also more and more advocates for women's inclusion within different organizations and within governments that support these peace processes or, or that facilitate these peace processes. For example, the UN, uh, the EU and different NGOs or, or governments. But I have to say that there are still many processes where women are not included or they are not included in a very meaningful way. And I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, Mali has been one example of a process where this has been difficult. Um, so, uh, and Mali is, of course, a process that I have studied most in depth. So, and I think that just to kind of uh, wrap up, I think one of the key questions in research and among policymakers in the last uh, uh, few years uh, has been sort of whether women's inclusion will actually lead to more durable peace. Will it? Will we have um, a, a better chance for peace agreements to be implemented and for uh, kind of uh, 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 well, for, or will we have a lower risk of conflict relapse? Because many peace agreements break down and in many cases, conflict breaks out again after a peace agreement has been uh, reached. So the question is, right, does women's inclusion sort of uh, help in, in, uh, in this area? And this has been really difficult to research, right? Because so few women have participated in peace processes. So there is very little data to actually uh, do research on. Um, but uh, more and more studies are looking at this, and we are now seeing um, uh, publications, research results, which show that there is a, a, a relationship between women's inclusion in peace processes and, uh, well, more durable peace agreements, etc. Yeah, and I don't want to um, offend the the scientists because um, we know that things that seem obvious are not always true, but. Uh, you would perhaps hypothesize that if more people are included, that a, that a peace agreement might be more successful. So I'm looking forward to seeing more research, like you say, as there hopefully uh, is more data that we can actually use to study that. Um, so like you said, we're going to talk mostly about Mali because that's been the, the focus of your work. And um, when it comes to that case, you conducted a very impressive, I think, 65 interviews with 20 men, 53 women. Uh, including women who were present during peace negotiations. But as you write, these women had to make their own place. So I'm just quoting here, uh, without even knowing the venue of the negotiations, four women from civil society traveled to Ouagadougou to demand a seat at the table and an end to the fighting. So what did these women actually experience once they made it into the negotiations, uh, both in 2013 and in, in 2014 in the Algiers negotiations, which are the, the two uh, that you write about? Yeah, um, well, so it, the really interesting thing about Mali, right, is it's not really considered a success case. So, uh, but then when I started to, to do this research and looking closely and going there and talking to people, um, especially women activists, they would tell me a lot of stories about the things that they've done, which uh, includes what you just mentioned, this... Um, <clears throat> because there were ceasefire negotiations in 2013 um, in Ouagadougou, in Burkina Faso, which is a neighboring country for Mali. And um, so these women were, uh, there were four women from civil society and they were collaborating with UN women at the time. 
and uh, they were very frustrated because uh, they hadn't been invited to these ceasefire negotiations. And um, like you said, they in the end they just went to uh, Wagadougou without knowing uh, where the negotiations were taking place. And they they told me like they were like yeah yeah. So UN Women said they would pay for our tickets, but we had to pay for them ourselves. And then we went there and we went to our hotel and then we, you know, they called around using their networks and tried to find out like which conference hotel is this, this are these negotiations taking place? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very, I think it's such a remarkable story because they did uh, find out and they just went there and they're like basically had to kind of fight their way in. That That's the... Uh, how they described it and they 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 came and they were not uh welcomed initially but they refused to leave and then after a while they were given uh some chairs (laughs) to sit on and and they were also given i think nameplates after a while and and then finally the the lead um mediator said that okay we will we will listen to everyone and, and these uh, four women, they actually wrote down their kind of uh, demands on a piece of paper, like when they were sitting there waiting for their turn, they were kind of taking notes. And um, and this this uh, this uh, text, which they wrote, became the preamble to the agreement in the end. So they, they were quite influential at that time, and they also managed to get a place at the table, at the negotiating table, which is the kind of phrase that you will often hear uh, in discussions about women's participation like we want a place at the table so literally in this case in this case or just a seat at the table <laughs> yes and they did that and i think that is uh, quite remarkable and there was also uh i think uh for because this was of course they were just ignored initially right uh, and this gave them some confidence and then they were invited back again as well so this was very good. Uh, but then uh, when um, the negotiations in Algiers uh, were going to take place, so this was about a year later. And um, so it was a, a new location in Algeria, also a neighboring country. Uh, and there was a new mediation team. So uh, in, in Burkina Faso, it was ECOVAS, the, a regional organization that was uh, the mediator in the conflict. And then in Algiers, you had a whole new mediation team led by, uh, at the time, an Algerian foreign minister with like different governments from the region, as well as France, as well as uh, the UK, EU, UN. So it was like this huge, very internationalized process. And uh, again, uh, women from civil society were not invited. So there were very few women uh, there at the negotiations in Algiers. There were a few on each negotiation team, but um, I mean, like five in total. And uh, so the women who kind of considered themselves to be representatives of civil society, they thought that they should uh, participate as well. And they were also disappointed because kind of after what happened in Ouagadougou, they had expectations, right? But um but they, yeah, again, they were kind of ignored, uh, but they did have more allies, I think, in this process, or uh, there were um, people in the UN and in the EU, especially, and also some, of course, other partners that supported women's participation. 
but there was a lot of resistance and especially from the parties and from uh, the the lead mediator and uh, and some also members of the mediation team so there was this kind of both uh, just kind of in action or they they were just uh, not in or yeah just don't do do anything for women's inclusion but there was also actually quite explicit resistance from some of these actors um and so uh but what they did because there was uh the women's activists in mali they uh campaigned for inclusion so they allied with international uh, partners and they held a press conference and they were kind of like, we are going to put pressure on our, um, on, on, on the peace process, on, on the parties to be included. So what they did was that instead of giving them a place at the table this time, they set up a consultative forum, uh, which they called civil society hearings. So they did bring representatives from civil society, not only women's representatives but all different kinds of representatives um to Algiers I think for two weeks uh to sort of share their experiences and with the parties and and with the mediators and to kind of uh, give their input to the process in this way and uh and they were also I mean there was also this kind of um what I call participation from a distance in a way where uh, women's organizations in, in Mali would have meetings with the UN and kind of convey their views, their inputs. Um, and then the UN would kind of bring this to the mediators and to the parties. But, uh, and, and actually this is interesting, you know, because you saw, we saw that in Ouagadougou, they got a seat at the table. And then in Algiers, they don't, they get this kind of um, more indirect participation mm. and uh, and I, I think that it's important to kind of also reflect upon because there is this demand to have a, a seat at the table um, often but it's not it doesn't have to be uh, better <laughs> it's not uh, necessarily I mean it, uh, indirect participation can be uh, also influential but it I mean so the, the main point I would say is that it has to be uh, meaningful it has to actually uh, lead to something it has to and 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 this is of course uh, will differ from peace process to peace process but the activists that I talked to in Mali um, unfortunately they didn't find that their participation had been very meaningful they didn't feel like they had an actual influence on the on the outcome on the peace agreement uh, on, uh, on what was in the peace agreement in the end um, so they were quite disappointed, actually. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is about when you are in either a minority or a marginalized community, uh, possibly being tokenized. Because you quoted a woman who said that she felt that the women the prime minister had brought could not speak on behalf of the communities. You quote her. So, I mean, I, I have heard about this in other um, peace negotiations as well, and that even when somebody, one person or several people are included, that maybe the other members of their community or communities adjacent to them don't feel like they're being represented. So how do you think that can be, that tokenization can be avoided or dealt with when one or a few representatives are being held up 
as examples of an entire community or entire group. Yeah, exactly. I think that's uh, that's a really uh, good point. And it also, I mean, it's really this um, issue of uh, being present or not, right? Does it matter to be present? But uh, I think actually that uh, there is a pretty good awareness today among scholars and policymakers about this issue of tokenization. Uh, but uh, it still happens a lot. And to kind of just um, uh, kind of an example of tokenization would be, you know, to just um, there is a demand to include women. So you put a woman there and uh, but she's there to tick a box and she doesn't really contribute or have the opportunity to speak. And um, usually often she will also be the relative of a powerful male who is uh, has a, a kind of role in the process mm. so so that that's kind of an example of tokenism but uh, i think the real issue here is actually about representation as you kind of said because uh representation is i mean that concerns all groups in in the peace process right and uh, and what i saw in mali and what i think happens also in other processes is that different groups will question the right of other groups to be representative and even the parties, right? Who do they really represent? Do they represent the people? Um, and uh, when it comes to kind of civil society participation, there is this issue that in many places, civil society is quite political. And uh, civil society organizations, including women's organizations, will be affiliated with one side of the conflict to varying degrees. But this will often happen. And, and um, so then we, we get to kind of who has the right to represent women in the peace process. And, um, and as I said, I think this, this applies to uh, all different groups and, and, and constellations in peace processes. But I find that maybe this is even more acute in terms of women's participation because there is this expectation that women will be united and they will represent um, all women and they will be kind of peace-promoting or peaceful. Hmm. Um, and I also found this to be an expectation or e even a premise uh, upon which women's participation was designed in the peace process in Mali. Because... Um, and this is interesting because in because Mali has a, a very very diverse population, and um, which means that women are also very diverse, and they are also divided along different lines, ethnic lines, uh, political uh, and and conflict uh, lines. So women's organizations in Mali often have an affiliation to one side of the conflict, uh, and women are. Uh, often political, but they are treated as though they're kind of apolitical uh, and, and they're expected to kind of unite across these differences. So, um, for example, in uh, during my fieldwork in Mali, there was um, uh, this peace conference taking place and women from all over the country came to the capital, to Bamako, to meet and they had this uh, wonderful uh, meeting for peace and it lasted for I think three or four days <clears throat> and during this period uh, and, and it was organized by the Ministry of 
um, uh, women, families, and children. And um, so uh, during this meeting, there was a, a gathering or a meeting at the National Assembly. And one of the representatives uh, who was uh, also participating at this meeting for peace, uh, she went to the National Assembly wearing a scarf that resembled the flag of Azawad. And Azawad is the territory, um, the disputed territory in the north uh, over which the conflict was fought, basically. And a part of the peace agreement was to kind of um, put that aside and uh, agree that the, that Mali should be one united territory and to give up this claim to Azawad. So, of course, this was very, very controversial and it created a lot of tension. And, uh, and uh, the, the minister for uh, women, children and families had to make a statement and people were like talking about her having to leave office, uh, which in the end she didn't. But it was quite, uh, it was very controversial. But I think for me, it really showed how women are political actors in this conflict. But the interesting thing was that among international actors uh, that I kind of talked to in Mali, their reactions were um, to kind of see women as difficult to work with. Oh, so women in Mali are difficult. This shows how difficult it is to work with women here and that women are spoilers. And of course, yes, they can be spoilers. And this is a good example of that, actually. But um, I think the problem is much more about the expectation that they won't be <laughs> political. Right. So your question about sort of how we can deal with this tokenism or this, this issue of... of uh, uh, of representation, um, I think that well, uh, of course, to have knowledge about the context and about the conflict is is a good place to start. But most importantly, I think that there is really a need among practitioners to recognize women as political actors and to treat them as political actors in peace processes. And this is also a way that women can actually have an influence. In, on the peace process rather than just being there as tokens. So why do you think it is that uh, there's such a reluctance to include women in these negotiations? I mean, the obvious answer, of course, is just sexism. <laughs> but, I, I mean, is there is there more to that? Or maybe in your interviews, did you hear any kind of justification? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that uh, um, there are several reasons. I think that, uh, as you kind of uh, hinted to, I think patriarchal norms are very strong and they're very strong in spaces uh, such as peace processes as well. They're not only kind of strong in 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 Malian society, they're very strong in, in, uh, in peace negotiations. And um, yeah, so, so you have to kind of remember that uh, you're not only trying to promote women's inclusion but you're also kind of trying to to uh, break down a very strong norm of women's exclusion it's and i think that's really hard work um but i think that there's also a lot of this kind of where people just don't think it's very relevant they just don't see the the importance and they think that there are other issues that are more important more pressing like uh ending violence <laughs> which is of course uh more pressing uh, sometimes and but but I think there is this kind of like but why should we spend time on this when there are so many other important things 
Mm. But also, I mean, sometimes um, peace processes are very political and, and, and the actors, the, the parties especially, will have to concede something in order to uh, make room for, for other actors in the process and other views. And they don't always want to do that, right? But then there's also um, some ideas about, for example, how if you add more issues or more actors to a peace process, it will be more difficult to reach an agreement. And this is interesting because as far as I know, there's no research that shows that this is the case. On the contrary, more recent research has found that this is not the case. And... um, in my interviews, I also, um, or in my research, I found that sometimes there's disagreement over sort of, like, for example, in, in the Malian process, um, uh, the parties, they could see that women had a very important role to play in the sort of reconciliation phase, in the peace building phase, after the negotiations, but they didn't really see that they had anything to contribute to the actual negotiations. And of course, you could say that these are, this is just a, uh, an excuse. Um, but uh, I mean, I think that um, I mean, I think I think that this shows that there is uh, like some parts of this idea are more contested than others, right? And uh, finally, I think that um, often women are not seen as competent or as having something to contribute to the process. But um, this is, um, I mean, you have to remember that uh, the parties to the conflict also, most most of the time, they receive training before they participate in the peace process to kind of help them. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, the same could be offered to women's representatives, right? And also, I think that there is this kind of, this idea of what kind of competences are are relevant for for participating in a, in a peace negotiation or a peace process? There, it's not necessarily to have fought uh, on the battlefield that will help you kind of negotiate peace. Mm. This is often the criteria. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of women have made really good points about that they are also affected by the conflict, um, not just ha- having had to fight in the actual conflict. Um, so what do you, just wrapping up, what do you think all of this can maybe teach other groups like ethnic or sexual minorities when it comes to demanding a seat at the table or um, creating more inclusive peace processes and negotiations and uh, discussions and conversations? I mean, I know that's kind of a big question, but um, yeah, what do you think the key points are here? Well, I think that um, having uh, followed the Malian peace process, uh, for a few years. Uh, one of the lessons is that, um, well, first of all, uh, you need allies and uh, pushing for participation will uh, get you somewhere. Maybe not to kind of uh, an ideal situation, but but there there is um, there is something to be said for for advocacy and for pushing for participation. Uh, but I mean, um, you you do need allies. Like I said, uh, I think that the um, what changed in in the Malian case, uh, kind of along the way, was the focus of the international community. 
there is a lot more support for women's participation. There's a lot more advocacy for women's participation from the international community now than it, there was in the beginning. Um, but also, I think that women need to, um, uh, they need to be a bit organized and to kind of have a clear agenda, uh, quite clear demands that are concrete. And um, they have to maybe consider uh, how they formulate uh, their contribution to the peace process. Because um, many, um, uh, quite a few actors in Mali were kind of uh, complaining a little bit about how the women were just demanding uh, a place in the process and not saying exactly what they would contribute. And I think this is very frustrating for these women to, to hear because they have con contributed a lot, right? And they, for them, this is very obvious. And, and, and also, I mean, they should have a right to be there. But in terms of kind of strategy, I think this might be kind of a takeaway. And... Um, and I also think that, um, well, like we already discussed, women's presence isn't enough in and of itself. But I think it's important because one of the things that I uh, find in my research is that um, kind of this, this women, peace and security agenda, which sort of exists at this kind of a very high political level at the UN. It's been adopted by the UN Security Council and it's supposed to be implemented, right, in these different peace processes. And this is kind of a very top-down way of thinking. <laughs> and, um, um, but I think that because this uh, agenda, the Women, Peace and Security agenda is actually uh, kind of like a moving target because there are, are new resolutions um, yearly almost or at least regularly and i think these resolutions we have to kind of see are also informed by what's happening in different peace processes so um so uh what's happening in the implementation is actually important for for and then what happens in other peace processes for example so i think that you know it's important actually for um these groups to be present so that they can uh, be part of shaping these frameworks and these these uh, political uh, and normative frameworks that exist and that are pushing from the top, kind of. So there is this push from below and push from from the top. But um, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, presence isn't enough in itself. But I think I still think it's important. Thanks for picking Prio's piece in a pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trikhauger. Music by Martin Vendemol.